Yeah, if you keep your Bibles open at our second Bible reading in James chapter 1, we'll spend most of our time there this morning. But before we get into God's Word, let me pray because I need God's help. Heavenly Father, I pray for our time together this morning that you would open our eyes to see the great truths in your Word, that you would Comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. I pray that in my weakness you would give my words power, that you would speak into each of our hearts, that we might believe the great things in your word here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin by just asking you the question, What is one word that comes to mind when you think of 2020? COVID. That's not where my mind goes to straight away. The first thing that comes to mind for me is actually bushfires. And I think because the way my brain works, I go to my first memory of 2020. And uh, when 2020 kicked off, New Year, I was actually in a state visiting my family in a little town of Tumut in New South Wales, and uh, there was a bushfire that started uh, just before New Year, about 25 k's from where I was, and I've had bushfires happen before, but this bushfire was unlike anything that I can remember, and I was on holidays, but holiday is not the the word that comes to mind when I think of that experience. uh, I've never been so grateful when I go back to Bendigo to... Just be able to walk outside and be able to breathe clean air. It's a thing that's so simple and that you take for granted. But that for me is one thing that comes to mind first thing when I think of 2020. But you might go for the obvious thing, which uh, might be COVID or coronavirus, or perhaps not. Perhaps when you think 2020, the first thing that comes to mind is toilet paper. You remember when that was a thing? Uh, Or maybe for you it was like social distancing or quarantine or isolation or uh, job keeper or essential worker. Zoom. Who'd ever heard of Zoom before 2020? (laughs) Good for you. Uh, Now we've all experienced uh, Zoom and maybe homeschooling on Zoom. what about 2021 even? Maybe think about uh, masks or check-ins, QR codes, testing, vaccines, protests, whatever it is. Um, there's all sorts of things you might think of. Perhaps you think of something far more personal. Perhaps you think of 2020 and you think of depression, isolation, conflict, Cancer? Maybe you had a wedding. Maybe you had a baby. Maybe you had a funeral. I don't know what you think of when you think about the last couple of years that we've gone through. But as I talk to people, everyone that I've talked to has gone through things that are really hard. And so if you wanted to try and sum up all of our collective experience, even though our experiences haven't been exactly the same, I think a word that might come to mind, you actually see here in our passage in James chapter 1, and that is 
the word trials. When I think of the last couple of years, I think trials of various kinds, all sorts. Don't you think that's a, a great description of what we've all been through? And who knows what this year will look like? I think we're all hoping and praying that things will go back to normal, whatever that is. But what if they don't? You might be wondering, why would God be putting us through all this hardship? How am I going to find the strength to get through more trials if they come? And I think James chapter 1 has so much to say to us this morning. And so if you can turn with me to James chapter 1, we'll see what God has to say to us this morning. Now, just before I start... um, Just the context of James chapter 1, as was uh, common in ancient letters, uh, the author of this letter, James, actually begins. In verse 1 he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that this James is actually Jesus' half-brother. We see James here, he identifies himself as a servant, and he recognises Jesus as his Lord. But who is James writing to? Well, we see that he's writing the verse 1 to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the 12 tribes was just a common way of referring to the people of God. It seems James was writing to Jewish Christians who were scattered out from Jerusalem, which is not surprising given James's prominent place in the early church at Jerusalem. Um, but as he writes to the Jews, he also writes to all of God's people, namely us, even today, even here in Bendigo. But what is his message? Well, I've kind of got two points this morning. Um, well, three, but I'll start with two and we'll get to the third point. <laughs> two from this passage. The first one is that about trials and, and how we are to think about trials. Have a look with me. Read verse 2, James chapter 1. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice straight up that James says here, when you meet trials, not if you meet trials. See, we will all meet trials. They are a normal part of life. They are to be expected. So that's the first thing you see here. Trials are a reality, and I think we, we all know that. But they're not a reality that we usually would welcome. Now, it may be that you are right now going through one or, or more particularly difficult situations in your life, something that you may wonder how it is you're going to be able to keep going. You may wonder how is it you're going to get through this. A bit later in this chapter, verse 12, uh, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. You might at this moment feel like, you know, standing firm in the midst of your trial is impossible. The idea of passing the test, remaining steadfast under trial, how, how can you possibly do that, you may be wondering. Well, the first step to remaining steadfast under trial is that we need to change how we think about trials. James says here to count it joy. 
Or as a, another translation translates it, it says, consider it joy when you face trials. So James is not so much telling us at this point how we should feel about the trials. He's telling us how we should think about them. He's not saying just smile, put on a happy face, pretend like this trial is amazing and it's the most joyful thing that you've ever experienced. That's not what he's saying. No, the, the trial is not joyful. That's why we have to count it as joy. That's why we must consider it joy. James is telling us there's a certain point of view that we have to adopt. Now, notice too that trials come in various kinds. See, there's a whole range of different kinds of trials that I think James has in mind. And he deliberately, I think, doesn't explain what they are. He doesn't define things such, this is a trial, that's not a trial. He doesn't give any particular description of a specific trial as if, like, here's a trial. But no, because I think sometimes we can be tempted to kind of compare the kind of situations that we go through. James doesn't do that. He doesn't give a list and say, here's what you should consider a trial. And you see, you and I might both go through the exactly the same thing. And maybe I might find that particularly hard and you don't. Or maybe you go through something that you find really hard that I don't go through, that, that I don't find myself affected by in the same way. That, that doesn't mean that that's not a trial. Um, James doesn't define the trials. He, he explains trials in such a way that whatever they might be for us, whatever they might be for you, whatever they might be for me, His words here apply to us this morning. And what he says is to count them, the trials, as joy. Why? Why should we count trials as joyful? Well, verse 3, James goes on to explain. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, James's point is fairly simple, I think, at this, this point. He says, trials test our faith, and the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, so that we might be complete, is what he says. In other words, trials shape us and transform us. They help to make us into the person God wants us to be. God uses the difficult circumstances of our life to transform us to be like Jesus. You see, nobody gets fit through a life of ease, right? If you go to the gym, you put your muscles through all sorts of hardship and that pain, that work that you put in actually helps develop our muscles Without the trials, without the work, without the straining, uh, that end result doesn't come to be, right? In the same way, we don't transform our character through a life of ease either. Trials are like the rigorous training that God puts us through for our good to shape us to be more like Jesus. Like physical exercise transforms our bodies, uh, this trials is transformed our character. 
Now, this should actually be something that we long for as Christians. We should actually want to become more and more like Jesus. And and Paul says something similar, actually, in uh, Romans chapter 3. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So when we face trials, when we face hardships, James tells us to count them as joy. Now, he doesn't mean that they won't be painful. He doesn't mean that we should pretend our trials don't hurt. It's natural and normal that they do. Neither is James saying that we should deliberately seek out hardship and create situations where we we suffer. No, suffering in and of itself is not a good thing. He's not saying that. But he is saying that what God is achieving through our suffering, through our trials, is actually good. Not the trials themselves, but it's that experience of God shaping us and transforming us to be more like Jesus. When that happens, count that as joy. See, trials are an opportunity to develop a faith that is mature and a faith that is complete, not lacking in anything. What could be more valuable than that? Now, it's going to be a fight probably for us to view trials in that way, to consciously force ourselves to have that perspective, to be able to look beyond our immediate circumstances so that we can look to the good that God's doing. But it's as we do this, it's as we have a a bigger picture of God's work in us and, and through the circumstances that we can have joy. Now, just speaking personally, uh, for myself and sharing some challenges with you. I shared a little bit about the ministry on campus, but ministry on campus has been really hard the last couple of years. It's, it's hard to do ministry with people when you can't meet with them face to face. That has been a challenge. That has been a trial. More than that even, I find it personally uh, challenging with the nature of my work in how I get paid. I am fully reliant on the support of other Christians and that can be hard to be dependent in that kind of a way. It's a challenge for me to to rest on God's provision. In in recent months, I've, I've gone into a little bit of deficit and I don't like talking to people about money and it's a challenge to my pride it's challenging to have to be dependent on the support of others. That's it's not something I naturally count as joy, but I need to. Now, I need to see how God is using the circumstances of my life to transform me, to, to trust him more, to see how he's working in me and growing me as a Christian. And I'm deeply thankful for the support of St. John's collectively as the church and as individuals here who supported me. I'm really thankful for that. And if anyone wants to talk to me about supporting me on campus, I'd love to talk to you later. But the point is that God has provided and I need to trust him that he will continue to provide. That's been hard for me. God is generous. And we're going to see that in a moment. But for you... Maybe there's a particular trial that you're dealing with at the moment. Maybe it's conflict. Maybe it's a a health problem. Maybe your work situation is a challenge, either because of your job or because of your lack of a job. 
Maybe your, your marriage is just in a really hard season. Maybe you're, you're battling loneliness. Or maybe you're trying to sell a manse and the offers aren't there and you're not sure how that's going to play out. Whatever the various trials that you're facing, and there's no doubting that we will go through hard things, are you going to let God's word transform your thinking so that you can view your trials as joy because of what God is doing and because of what God will continue to do through those circumstances? That's the first thing. Think about how do we think about our trials? But the second thing I want us to think about is what do we do in the midst of trials? If we're going to discern what God is teaching us through the hardships that we go through, if we're going to know how to get through them, we're going to need wisdom. And when we're in the midst of pain and when it's common to completely lose your bearings and to feel overwhelmed or disoriented or paralysed, to not know what to do or how to cope. It's hard to think through, what, what, what should I do? How do I cope in this situation? So it's not surprising that at this point that James, after telling us that we need to count our trials as joy, he says, verse 5, that we need to turn to God for wisdom. Verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. If life is overwhelming, if you don't know what to do, ask God. A trial is not a situation where we're supposed to prove ourselves by handling everything on our own. Spiritual maturity is not about proving that we don't need God and we can take care of things by ourselves. It's quite the opposite, in fact. And trials, especially, are moments in life we're not necessarily supposed to know what to do because, you see, James both assumes that they'll need wisdom but also that they'll lack wisdom. And that's why he tells us to ask God for it. We're supposed to feel like we need God's help. That's actually another reason why trials are so good for us. Part of what a trial does is clarify for us our great need and our dependence upon God's help. Trials clarify our dependence on him. They they bring us to our knees, which is actually the best place that we can be in. You are not letting anyone down by coming to God asking for help. In fact, you're letting yourself down. We're letting ourselves down if we don't do that. And why wouldn't we come to God and ask for help when we, you look at the type of God that God is? As James reminds us, he says that God gives generously to all without reproach. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, God is not stingy in the way that he answers prayer. God delights in giving generously to all. You see, God's wisdom is not just for a privileged few elite Christians. God's wisdom is for all Christians. His wisdom is for you if you ask him for it. God's not looking for a reason not to answer your prayer. He he answers it, he gives generously to all without reproach, it says here. 
You see, James here, he's reminding us about what we already know about God. See, when you look at the gospel, when you look at Jesus' death in your place for your sin, we see a God who is amazingly generous, isn't he? Now, I'll come back to this in a moment about God's generosity. But thinking about God's willingness to answer our prayer and his generosity and his answering all without reproach, what comes next might seem like a bit of a shock to you. If you look at verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, as we read that, it's possible that you're feeling uneasy at this point. We must not doubt. I mean, what Christian at some point hasn't had any doubts? Does this mean that Christians who experience doubt at any point can't expect anything from God? No, I don't think that's what James is saying here. Um, One of my favourite movies growing up as a kid, which I used to watch with my brothers all the time, was a movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I don't know if you've seen it. I don't want to spoil it. It's only like 30-odd years old now, but... um, So in this movie, Indiana Jones and his father are on a quest to recover the Holy Grail. Now, towards the end of the film, there's a scene where he, trying to save his dad, Indiana Jones gets to this big chasm that there's seemingly no way to cross. But he realises it's a test of faith, and with seemingly no way to get it from one side to the other, he, he kind of tells himself, he's like, I must believe, I must believe, I must believe. And kind of having psyched himself out, he takes a step out in faith. Only to discover that there's actually a secret path. I don't know if you can see it up there, but there's a path that had been there all along, kind of secretly camouflaged by the darkness. Now, is this the kind of thing he gets across? Is this the kind of thing God wants from us? When he says, you know, don't doubt. Is, are we supposed to, like, you know, psych ourselves up into some state of, I just got to believe, got to believe, got to believe. I can't see any reason, but... No, I, I don't think that's what James is talking about here. Because he goes on to next to say something that I think helps us explain, uh, yeah, what, what he's talking about. As always, with reading the scriptures, context is key, right? So it's clear that what he's talking about is a person who has split loyalties. See in verse 8 there, he says, the one who doubts is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is talking about a person who kind of hedges their bets. In other words, James is talking about a person who asks God for wisdom but then looks around to see if someone else has some better wisdom. He's talking about a person who kind of wants to follow God but wants to follow the world at the same time, and you can't do both those things. You see, they'll ask God for wisdom, but they don't really want to follow God's wisdom. Maybe you've been like that at moments, you know. Maybe it's, you feel like, you, God, what do I do? And you feel like, oh, maybe I really need to forgive this person. But I don't really want to do that, God. I want to just 
do my own thing. See, a double-minded man, a double-minded person is kind of hedging their bets. They're taking a little bit of God's wisdom and a little bit of something else. And he says, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, you need to be prepared to listen to God's wisdom. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. What he says is it's, it makes you unstable. If you imagine a person who's kind of got one foot on land and one foot on a boat and they're kind of drifting apart, that un, unstable person, right? You're going to end up wet or something. James likens them, you see there, as, as one who's tossed by the waves of the sea. His point is that we need to be sincere about receiving wisdom from God. When you come to God, come sincerely. Come preparing to listen to God's wisdom. And if we are genuinely seeking to go God's way, even when that seems difficult, we can be sure that God promises that he will give us his wisdom. He promises that. He's not always saying you're going to experience some sudden flash of insight as though you know what you've got to do. I know I've prayed for wisdom lots of times from God, seeking answers, and I know lots of other faithful Christians have done that as well, and it hasn't always been that afterwards we felt like we knew what to do. You might feel just as confused. Case in point, there have been many times over the last year or so where I and the other elders at my church at Reforming have prayed for wisdom in how to navigate challenges posed by COVID. What do we do? And the answer hasn't always been clear and obvious. I haven't felt like God's you know, parted the heavens and a lot voice has come and said, you should do this. It hasn't always been obvious to us when we've prayed. Was God withholding his wisdom because of our doubt? I don't think so. I believe that God was giving us his wisdom. I think there's a difference between receiving wisdom and feeling wise. God doesn't promise us that after we pray we're going to feel wise. We may pray for wisdom and feel none the wiser. It doesn't mean God hasn't answered our prayer. We may not feel any more confident that we're doing the right thing. But when we pray for him and we ask sincerely for his wisdom and ask according to his will, seeking to do his will, we can be confident that he's going to hear our prayer and protect us from folly. He's going to guard our steps. And so when we lack wisdom in the midst of trials, as we often do when trials just seem overwhelming, God promises wisdom and we can be confident that he'll give it to us. Now, we might not feel like we have lots of wisdom given to us in terms of knowledge or insight in a trial, but what you actually see in Scripture is that wisdom is actually hidden in a person a person that God gives to us. In, in Colossians chapter 2, um, I'll read, read verse 1 to 3. It says oh, that God's mystery, which is Christ, is in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says in Colossians that all wisdom and all knowledge is actually hidden in Jesus. And so to receive wisdom is to receive Jesus. 
If you want to have wisdom in the midst of trials, go to Jesus. God gives us his son to be with us in the midst of whatever trial we're going through. So whatever you are going through, go through it with Jesus. However you're feeling, go to him. Bring those things on your heart to him and rest in who he is and what he's done for us. You see, Jesus knows what it is to go through trials. He's the model of what it looks like to go through trials. Do you ever wonder how Jesus endured the cross? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. See, Jesus counted it joy as he went through the trial that was his death on the cross. He counted it joy as he looked to what God was going to produce through that. He looked at what God was going to accomplish through his death. And that's what helped him to, to get through it. And James here is calling us to something similar. When we go through trials, look to what God is doing through them so that we might endure and so that he might transform to make us more like Jesus through them. We also see that God promises to give wisdom generously. It says that God is a God who gives generously. We also see the most precious gift of his son. We see that we have in him forgiveness of sin. We see in Jesus that we have a new life. We see that we have hope. We see that through Jesus and through the gospel, God gives us his spirit to help us in our weaknesses. Romans 8 verse 31 to 32 says, and the context is all about the hardships that they're going through. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, if God has graciously given us Jesus, when we were sinners, when we were under his wrath, when he was angry at us, if he provided the greatest gift of his son, how much more now that we are his children will he answer our prayers and give us the things that we ask for, the things that we need to get through the circumstances that he's put us in? So we see there at the end of Romans 8, which was read out earlier, Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see in Jesus, in the gospel, that God gives generously to all. He gives it to us, we who don't deserve this gift of salvation. He gives it to all without finding fault. Jesus has covered our guilt and our shame. And so I ask you, do you know that joy? Do you know the joy of Jesus? Have you received Jesus, God's wisdom? Perhaps you've been double-minded in your response to Jesus so far. Perhaps you kind of you've heard about Jesus, but you haven't come to fully put your trust in him. Perhaps you're kind of unstable. 
I want to encourage you this morning to actually receive wisdom, God's wisdom. Receive the person, the gift of his son who died in your place. So that whatever comes this year and in the coming years, as you face trials, as you face hardship, that you can go through it with Jesus so that you won't be tossed to and fro like the waves on the on the sea. And if you do know Jesus, are you going to uh, trust him in the circumstances that he's there with you? You're going to know the love and the joy and the hope that he gives us. And are you going to uh, learn to see what God is achieving through your hardships so that you might become more like him? How about I pray that God would help us to do that? Heavenly Father, we know that all of us have had a really hard season of life over the last few years for various reasons, some of them common to us all, some of them not. We pray that you would help us to count what you are doing in us through these things as joy as you use them to make us more like Jesus. We pray that when these things seem overwhelming, that we wouldn't feel like we're in this alone or that we have to kind of prove to you somehow that we're mature by handling it ourselves, but that we would see our need for you and your your willingness to help us and be with us in the trials. Help us to come to you in a way that sincerely wants to, uh, to follow you. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.